0: Bernardo, uh, something that, I mean, I've been watching you and reading your books for such a long time. I mean, Schopenhauer, Carl Jung, um, talking about how much materialism is baloney. I mean, it's, there's so many fascinating journeys we can go on with this conversation. What I'd like to start with that I think m- intrigues me most of all is, what do you think about the difference between qualitative subjective experiences versus those quantitative, objective experiences? And why is it important for us to distinguish between these two concepts?
1: There is no such a thing as um, essentially quantitative experience. Experience is always qualitative. Uh, the, the, The very word quality appeals to the contents of experience, what it is like to see the redness of an apple. What it, is, what it is like to feel the bitterness, bitterness uh, of a lemon uh, um, or the bitterness of disappointment. Um, experience is always, only qualitative. Um, quantities are what we use to describe an experience. Mm-hmm. Lifting a 50 kilo piece of luggage feels different than lifting a five kilo piece of luggage. So we describe the differences between these experiences by saying... One weighs 50 kilograms and the other weighs five kilograms. We describe the quality of seeing red by the, by by setting um, a frequency number or, or, or a band in the electromagnetic spectrum to describe the color red and so on and so forth. Now, some experiences can be called objective in the sense that their content does not depend purely on our own individual minds, like... Um, If I'm on a beach and I look at the ocean, the experience of seeing the ocean does not depend only on me. Otherwise, the ocean will always be blue and the weather will always be sunny. But uh, when it's raining and and dark and cold, you know, wish as I may that it (laughs) that it were different. It isn't so objective experience. I mean, even your thoughts are objective from my perspective. Your thoughts are still there, even if I'm not around to Mm. talk to you. Uh, I can't change your thoughts merely by fantasizing them to be different. Um, So your thoughts, from my point of view, are objective, but your thoughts are essentially qualitative. That's how they exist to you. And you are the carrier of their existence. So experience is always qualitative. Quantities are to describe experience. And the divide between subjective and objective does not imply anything beyond experience. It only means that certain experiences are not ours to control, like your thoughts are not mine to control, but Mm. your thoughts are still experiential and they are still qualitative.
0: Mm. So so when look, we fundamentally, most of us today grow up in this very physicalist, materialistic, reductive approach towards science, um, understanding the universe and the way we live life. Uh, Why do you think this is so prominent? Why why do you think this is the approach we've taken so far for such a long time?
1: For a number of historical reasons. um, There is one detail that isn't historical and it's easy to understand, uh, which is a conflation between the colloquial and the technical meaning of the word matter or physicality. Uh, uh, There is no denying that the stuff we colloquially call matter exists and surrounds us. I mean, this metal bottle is very material in the colloquial sense. Um, But under the metaphysics of physicalism, matter is defined as that which is purely quantitative and not qualitative at all. Qualities are something our brains are supposed to make up inside our skull. What is out there has no qualities, has only quantities, which is, of course, incoherent, but that's physicalism. So because we conflate the technical term matter Mm. With the colloquial usage of the word, this seems to lend some credibility to the notion that everything is material because I look around and I only see matter. Yes, you only see matter in the colloquial sense. And that matter isn't the matter of physicalism. Mm. That matter uh, uh, is just the qualitative world. And under physicalism, the world out there is not qualitative. It's purely quantitative. Quantities are not just descriptions. They are the thing in itself. And that's, of course, one of the incoherent steps of physicalism mm. as a metaphysics. Now, for historical reasons, um, and, and now I will explain why the technical sense of the word matter has become mainstream uh, as a metaphysical approach, it started with you know, the, the early science uh, trying to protect itself against being burned at the stake by the church, like uh, Bruno was in the year 1600. Yeah. Um, so they, they had to carve out a space for them to do their work that the church wouldn't see as threatening. So they come out, and that was Descartes, he came up with this idea that uh, psyche, or soul, or mind, or qualities, these all mean the same thing. They, they go back to the Greek word psyche. Psyche is not what science deals in. The church can have it. So you're basically telling the church, you can have spirit, you can have soul, you can have mind, you can have consciousness. In other words, you can have everything because all we have ultimately are experiences Now everything else is an abstraction. And we scientists, we deal with the pure abstraction that we now strictly define as matter devoid of essential qualities mm-hmm. and, and being exhaustively describable in terms of quantities. In other words, after you give a list of numbers, you will have of numbers. You will have said everything there is to say about matter. And and that works supremely well. Um, and it was known all the way into the 18th century. I, I, I often quote uh, Denis Diderot, one of the two authors of La Encyclopédie, the founding document of the Enlight- Enlightenment, is on record saying materialism doesn't work, but we need it as a weapon against the church, meaning we need it so we don't get burned alive at the stake. Um, there was awareness of this into the 18th century, but around midway uh, through the 19th century, after Darwin, that there, there was that explosion of enthusiasm about uh, science being able to account for everything, including the variety of life, so we don't need the book of Genesis anymore. Um, people actually began to believe that uh, all there is may be quantitative matter. Yeah. This thing we can never access because we are cooped up within the world of mind, of qualities, of experiences, matter as defined under physicalism is purely a theoretical abstraction. But around the turn, of, uh, the middle of the nineteenth century, we truly began to replace reality with a theoretical abstraction. We we began to do it sincerely, and there was a lot of psychological payoff to begin with. You get rid of guilt. Um, you also get rid of the biggest fear in the history of mankind which is the fear of what you will experience after you're dead
2: Mm.
1: now this has this this greatest anxiety of of humankind has been leveraged leveraged by governments throughout history to control peoples because it's a very very present very very strong fear we've always had and with materialism or physicalism that was off the table when you're dead you're dead there will be nobody there to experience the flames of hell <laughs> or anything and then there were other psychological factors like fluid compensation and you know, the intellectual elites fe- felt distinguished and special special because they could stare the bleak fact in the face that all there is is matter and the soul the mind the psyche is an ephemeral you know side effect of material arrangements, and they were brave enough and intellectual enough to bite that bullet while the masses were indulging indulging in wish fulfillment and religious nonsense. So, you know, this distinguishes a certain class of people, the intellectual elites, and this is playing up to this day. Some of the spokespeople of science today are not scientists, scientists at all. Don't have the degrees, don't have the experience, don't have the track record, do not practice, but they go about, you know, the from television show to television show, uh, uh, you know, promoting the gospel of materialism, which isn't science. It's a metaphysics. But these people conflate the two and they feel great about it. And good for them.
0: <laughs> Bernardo, do you feel like um, as someone who considers consciousness to be fundamental, obviously we'll get through that at some point. Um, but do you think that when scientists, when we talk about scientism, um, I mean, I was obviously brought up in a very, uh, as a doctor, as someone who's obviously got a degree in philosophy as well. I, I, I still consider myself very much reductive, materialist, physicalist, and yet I'm agnostic enough to to have philosophical d- discussions with people who can obviously coherently argue their points. I mean, your analytical idealism is something, I mean, it's one of those points where I can't seem to pinpoint where I, where I find faults. And, and props to you for that. But a a part of me still wants to know, when when you look at the way scientists and scientism, views your view of consciousness, do you think they just associated with spirituality, um, some sort of a dogma that was religiously inclined? What are your religious views and spiritual views? And how do you think this has nothing to do with your scientific slash philosophical views?
1: I didn't have a religious upbringing. My mother um, is still a practicing, mildly practicing Catholic, mm-hmm. but I only saw her pray when she was in trouble, and her prayer was a way to tell God what to do. And as a child, you you see these things in the in the adult world. This, this nonsensical things adults do. And I you know, five year old, I could see that, and I'm like, Nah, right. <laughs> um, and my father. Um, he had all kinds of science interests. He had a subscription to Scientific American and Popular Electronics. Um, he built electronic circuits at home. I'm an electronics engineer, a computer engineer, partly because of that. He had uh, aquariums. He would breed tropical fish. Uh, so so he, uh, he had model airplanes that uh, he would build. And one of them he designed himself, carved out and, and built. So he had all these technical hobbies, you know um that's what i grew up with i went to university at 17 um had just turned 17 to study uh, computer engineering my first job at 22 was at cern you know the particle accelerator in switzerland i was helping build the data acquisition system of the atlas experiment of the large hadron collider it's one of the two experiments that found the higgs boson atlas and cms um so you know my my whole life i was no, I I had a reductive naturalistic outlook uh, and I still do. I still have a reductive naturalistic outlook. I just don't reduce everything to this contradiction yes. uh, that we call matter as defined under physicalism. I reduce everything to mind and I see mind as a field phenomenon. Mm. Um, but I'm still reductive. I'm still a naturalist. Um, it was only much later in life, in my mid-30s, that I began to develop a new respect for religion because you need a certain level of maturity to see through the the naive coating that um, some people sell religion under. Uh, they sort of create a straw man of religion. And, and when I say that, I don't mean only atheists. I mean also bishops and, and, and friars and, and priests, um, because a lot of them are theologically very naive. They, they present a version of Christianity, for instance, that is in direct contradiction with uh, the theological understanding of Christianity as held by church theologians. Uh, it's just that the church has this notion that uh, the simple people need a simple version, uh, which I don't think is the case at all. I think we underestimate the simple people out a lot. I'm a simple person, I'm a peasant boy, born in a faraway land of dreams, sometimes I even wonder, was my childhood really real? Um, today I have a respect for religion because I can see past that surface. Mm. Uh, I can see past the literal interpretations. I can see the depth, the nuance, the metaphorical sense that these things have. And uh, But that was a late development in my life. It required me to achieve a certain maturity before I could see that richness there. And and today I have tremendous respect uh, Mm -hmm. for religion. Now, do people associate what I say with religion? I think when I started out some 15 years ago, that was the case. Um, Things have have changed a lot in 15 years. Uh, Today, I don't think so. No, today, people who use uh, um, this link between analytic idealism and religion do that as a straw man when they run out of arguments. And the, okay. the latest one to do that was a neuroscientist from the US um, who's famously on record saying consciousness doesn't exist, doesn't exist. it doesn't yeah. happen. And then I criticized his nonsense, his bullshit, let me use the word. Uh, uh, and he didn't have a counter argument. And he said, yeah, yeah, it's religious Nonsense. So people still use it as an escape when they have their backs against the wall, but serious interlocutors don't have this association anymore um, because I don't um, I don't radiate it, if you know what I mean. Mm. I don't talk in in, in those terms. Uh, You you hear me talk about idealism. It's always based on empirical evidence, reason, you know, carefully constructed lines of argument. Um, It's not based on introspective insight i wrote two books in in which i talk about introspective insights but it's two out of ten so it's twenty percent it appeals (laughs) to another subset of the people who read me
0: when i spoke to donald hoffman i mean don says that um the same thing happens to him i mean ideally i mean you have two phds one in philosophy one in computer science you're clearly a scientist at heart um you found a way to reduce things in in a very different way from physicalists and that reductive approach clearly still applies to you um so so it's not that they can escape that that argument the fact is you're still approaching this in a very reductive manner and when i spoke to donald about this i mean he feels the same way um he feels that although he's taking such a naturalistic scientific approach to this he's often classified very very spiritual very and very metaphysical non-scientific and yet He's taking such a fundamentally mathematical approach to the, his conscious realism, which is a form of ideal, idealism. And, and I know that where you part ways with Don is um, you, of course, need two conscious agents. But before we get ahead of ourselves, I think it's important for us, let, let's talk about how would you define your idealism? How, what would, how would you describe it?
1: I, idealism is the notion that essentially everything is mental in nature. It's mind stuff, not your mind stuff alone, not even my mind stuff alone, or the mind stuffs of all living beings put together. No, there is mind stuff out there, Mm. outside the boundaries of biological organisms. And the mental processes, or the transpersonal mental processes out there, present themselves to observation as what we call matter in the colloquial sense. Mm. Um, And I argue that matter is what mental processes look like when observed through the intermediation of a dashboard. And I use this metaphor of a dashboard. You know, we are like an airplane. We have sensors that measure the world outside. We call it the surface of the tongue, the surface of the skin, the retinas, the eardrums, the lining of the nose. These are sensors. We measure what is really out there. An airplane does that too. But then an airplane presents those measurements to the pilot in the form of a dashboard of instruments the instrument panel. And even if the airplane had no transparent windows, the instrument panel would do. You can fly by instrument alone, safely, go from A to B and land safely by instrument alone. The dashboard conveys accurate and important information about what's going, going on out there. But what is out there is not the dashboard. The dashboard is not the sky outside. It doesn't look like the sky outside it only conveys information about the sky outside in an encoded in an encoded manner uh, that favors your flying safely mm-hmm. getting from a to b the screen of perception we have which presents to us the results of our sense organs measurements of the world is like a dashboard but we naively think that it's a transparent window into the world of course it's not there are en- en- entropy considerations why that wouldn't work if our perceptual states would mirror the states of the world out there, there would be no upper bound to our internal entropy and we would dissolve into hot soup. Uh, In terms of evolution by natural selection, and and that's Dawn's argument, nature would never have favored uh, a dashboard that mirrors the world. It's too confusing. It makes it much more difficult to react timely to environmental challenges. So the physical world we see, matter in the colloquial sense, this what appears on the screen of perception, what you see when you look around, is not the world as it actually is. It is a dashboard built by evolution that your, your organism is equipped with to allow you to fly by instruments safely <laughs> through life. Um, and physicality is a term that applies only to the dashboard, mm. not to the, to, the, to the world that is measured So something can be displayed on the dashboard. So the world is not physical. I think that's a pretty definitive conclusion, regardless of your metaphysical approach, materialist or otherwise. Um, What is left then? Well, what is left is what the only thing we know for sure to exist, which is mentality, mentation. Um, Your sadness has a physical representation. It's the tears running down your face, uh, your contorted facial muscles. There is something your sadness looks like. And we call it matter. By the same token, I would say the transpersonal mental processes that underlie all nature, they inanimate the universe out there, the planets, the moons, the galaxies, galaxy clusters, quasars, black holes, so on and so forth. Uh, all of that is what transpersonal mental processes at the at the foundational level of nature look to us when measured and represented on our dashboard, the screen of perception. Matter is what mental processes look like when they are measured and represented on the screen of perception. That's all there is to it. So there is a world out there, an objective world, mm-hmm. objective from my point of view, just like your thoughts are objective from my point of view. That world would continue to exist whether I'm here to look at it or not, whether I like it or not, whether I do a 100 affirmations a day to make it different or not. It's still there and it will be its own thing and it doesn't give a damn... Whether, whether I like it or not. Yes. But that world up there isn't physical. It is mental, just like my inner life is mental, and my inner life presents to observation as a very physical body. So the inanimate universe is the body of the mind of nature. You could look at things this way. And if you do it, you solve every kind of insoluble problem, every kind of contradiction that we face today in analytic philosophy and foundations of physics and neuroscience of consciousness.
0: Uh, tell me, Bernardo, when I spoke to Philip Goff about panpsychism, um, someone asked me a question. They asked me, how is Philip's panpsychism different from objective, real, from objective idealism? Do you have an answer to that question?
1: It's totally and not really different. <laughs> uh, for the panpsychist, matter really exists as a standalone reality. hmm For the idealist, matter is a representation on a dashboard. Matter is a representation. It's not the thing in itself. Yes. The thing in itself is not material. There aren't particles out there. Um, There are mental processes out there that become represented as matter. And the pixels of the screen of representation are what we call elementary subatomic particles. Um, But for the panpsychist, there are particles out there. There is a physical world out there. Um, that exists subjectively and it's not just a representation and the entities of that physical world in addition to having physical properties like mass charge momentum uh, um, they also have experiential properties there is something it is like to be an electron so panpsychism is the doctrine that matter is conscious while idealism is the is the notion that matter is in consciousness mm-hmm. as a representation of conscious processes? Let's see,
0: that, that actually makes a lot. It's great that you said that because to me, it kind of puts a lot of different things together. When you think of idealism and the different people within this group, because there are so many different thinkers, you've got uh, people like Heleneta de Chappelle, who's got this Berkeley and quasi- Berkeley idealism. I mean, you've obviously got Donald Hoffman, um, uh, Tony Nadir. I know you spoke to him as well. Um, uh, Who do you think aligns with your view the most? And who do you think, within the idealist community, is not doing a disservice necessarily, but is approaching idealism from the wrong view?
1: I think trying to resurrect subjective idealism, or Barcalian idealism, as formulated by Bishop, Bishop Barclay, Yes, is is a dead end because the the, the, the main well, it's a dead end in the sense that we interpret it today. I could argue that Barclay had something else in mind but uh, that brings us to a rabbit hole. I don't want to get in there so I will make a concession to today's interpretation of Barclay without necessarily acknowledging that it's correct. I will concede to it for the sake of argument. Uh Um, It's the notion that To be is to be perceived. In other words, that the world out there, the objective world out there, is the content of perception. Mm. To put it back into the context of the metaphor, it's like saying that the sky outside is the dashboard. Mm. That doesn't work because why are all dashboards then showing measurements that are consistent with one another? How come if I look up and see the sun, And ask you to look up and tell me what you see you would say there's the sun (laughs) and it's right there and i would say yes it's right there or if you were here you would describe the books on my bookshelves uh, in a way completely consistent with my own experience of my books so clearly there is an objective world out there whose states do not depend on our cognition of it on our our apprehension of it to be is not to be perceived to be is Mm. primary perception is a representation of what is but there is the thing that is so i think berkelian idealism doesn't even begin because doesn't even begin because you, you then have to explain even if my perceptions are not mine if they come from some universal database why are they so internally consistent and even consistent with your perceptions? I mean, you need some kind of you need to wave a magical wand and say, oh, because God did it that way, did it that way. That's not satisfying, is it? That's uh, that's not re- any version of reductionism. In mm-hmm. other words, it doesn't have any explanatory power, it doesn't solve problems, it creates more problems. I think the um panpsychism is often conflated with idealism. I think that's also a disservice because panpsychism doesn't even begin. I mean, panpsychists, they think that sub- elementary subatomic particles are things in themselves that they have defined spatial boundaries that like they are little, little balls. Uh, but th- we have known since at least the 1940s, arguably since the 1920s, that's not what particles are. Particles are ripples on a field they are patterns of excitation of a field. And the field has no spatial boundaries. Mm. And, and if you interpret particles that way, and, you, and as a panpsychist does, tries to attribute consciousness to some irreducible physical entity, then there is only the fields. There are no particles. For the same reason that the ripple is not a thing. You can't grab a ripple and lift it off the lake. Mm. It's not a thing. It, it's a doing. It's, it's a behavior of the lake particles are behaviors of quantum fields. There is no such a thing as particles. So you have to attribute consciousness to the fields, and then you are no longer a constitutive panpsychist because then you fall into idealism. There is only consciousness, and consciousness is spatially unbound. So I think only objective idealism is in the running. Uh, Only objective idealism cannot be definitively refuted. um, Like Physicalism can be definitively refuted, both on logical grounds and empirical grounds. Uh, uh, Objective idealism has no clear refutation. You may not like it. it. It may violate your sense of plausibility, which is culture bound, has been manufactured by the narratives you have heard from your culture since you were seven um, so you may not like it for that reason, but th- that reason doesn't count, all right? It's not an objective reason. It's it's a matter of taste or being used to a certain way of seeing the, wor- the world or not. And some people are not used to seeing the world the way I see the world, and yeah. therefore they think I'm wrong. Well, okay, then they have the right uh, to think that. But um, amongst a serious debate in analytic philosophy and even foundations of science, these are not good reasons to discard any worldview. A worldview is discarded based on internal uh, inconsistencies or empirical refutation. And the only one that survives that is objective idealism.
0: So, we, so when we talk about objective, I, objective idealism, Bernardo, um, l- let's take, for example, Karl Popper. I mean, he, he, at some point in his life, he spoke about two great scientists in their time. Uh, Sigmund Freud and Albert Einstein, he looked at the predictive powers that both of these people had. And as a scientist, you want to look at, of course, we understand psychology is a very scientific field at this point, and it's gathered knowledge in a very scientific way. But at the time, I mean, he said Einstein could predict that this would happen an eclipse would happen at this point on this day, at this time, whereas Freud could change his theory if he decided someone was going to grow up to be, let's say, psychotic or narcissistic. Um, he could change it later on if the person turns out to actually just have borderline personality or something different. Uh, and that's what he called the difference between a science and a pseudoscience. When you look at objective idealism, wh- where do you think the explanatory power, predictive power for science comes in? Uh, for all those people, of course, who want you to explain phenomena within the material world we supposedly live in. <laughs>
1: So, I will answer your question directly, but let me just uh, uh, preamble it with an important distinction. When Popper, sorry, I'm out of breath. I don't know your, what, how you will edit it, but I just had to run down because of a short circuit in my home. Hope so. your viewers <laughs> <laughs> forgive me. Um, Popper's falsifiability is a principle applicable to predictive theories. In other words, theories that make a prediction about how nature will behave. Freud predicting whether someone would be a neurotic and every person is part of nature and Einstein predicting gravitational lensing, how you could see a star behind the sun because the distortion of space time caused by the sun's mass would bend the light. And that's that's how we verified the correctness of Einstein's uh, theories. But these are theories that predict the behavior of nature, Mm. which is what science does science is in the business of predicting how nature will behave philosophy is not science philosophy specifically a part of philosophy called metaphysics meta being that which stands behind or above and physics being the world as we see Uh, what stands behind the physics in other words what is the thing that behaves metaphysics is in the business of making educated guessness guesses about what nature is. Mm. Science is in the business of predicting how nature behaves. Metaphysics is being, isness, essence. Mm. Science is behavior, doing. Uh, and Popper's falsifiability criteria, criterion does not necessarily apply to metaphysics. Mm because we are not, as metaphysicians, making predictions about how nature will behave. We are making educated guesses about what nature is. Is it purely quantitative, as materialists say, or is it mental, as idealists uh, say? Having said that, obviously, nature's behavior science should inform metaphysical speculation. If you have a metaphysics that has an implication that contradicts a measured behavior of nature, then your metaphysics is wrong. (laughs) That's all there is to say it's over, right? (laughs) It's over with. Uh, Because metaphysics are supposed to capture reality. And reality is not supposed to adapt itself to one's metaphysics. That was scholasticism. We outgrew that a few centuries ago. Um, Materialism, as a metaphysics, materialism is not science. Science is agnostic of metaphysics. Materialism as a metaphysics makes assumptions that today are contradicted by science. For instance, an assumption of uh, materialism is that uh, physical entities have standalone existence. That they exist regardless of of whether they are being measured. Mm. Today, from foundations of physics, short of some woo-woo uh, uh, theories for which there is zero empirical substantiation, like gazillions of new universes popping into existence every infinitesimal fraction of a second for which we have not an iota of evidence, or the woo-woo hidden variables of superdeterminism for which we don't have an iota of empirical evidence. Short of that, we have to acknowledge after 40 years of repeated experiments with entangled uh, particles, that physical entities do not exist prior to measurement. Whatever it is that you're measuring, it it isn't physical because physicality arises as a result of measurement. Now, back to the metaphor of the dashboard, that's not difficult to understand at all. Mm. If the airplane sensors are not, not making measurements, the dashboard doesn't show anything. And the physical world is the dashboard. Unless you measure, There is no physical world because there's nothing to be shown on the dashboard. Mm. Does that mean that there is no world to be measured? Of course not. Of course there is a world out there. It just isn't physical. And therefore, materialism or physicalism is refuted by evidence. Another prediction. Um, The information richness of experience must be completely grounded in the information richness of brain metabolism richer, intenser experience must mean a bigger variety of brain states and not just random brain states, but coherent brain states, because you also have to explain the coherence and structure of experience as fully grounded in brain states. But there's a whole host of things that not only violate this, they go the other way around. Psychedelics produce the top three most intense and memorable and richest experiences of one's life. That's researched by Johns Hopkins. Yes. And now after 10 years studying them, we know that all oh, psychedelics only reduce brain activity. They don't increase brain activity anywhere. Teenagers have learned that uh, if you partly choke yourself and, crawl, and induce anoxia, lack of oxygen to the brain, you can trip without drugs. Mm. Well, what does the lack of oxygen do to brain metabolism? It reduces brain metabolism, but you can have rich, intense experiences doing that. That's why Teenagers do it, and every now and then one of them dies because it's a very dangerous game to play. Um, um, acceleration induced loss of consciousness. Pilots under training, in the period in which they are unresponsive and we think they are unconscious, when they come by, they report, and I quote, memorable dreams. When there is no blood in the brain because they are being subject to nine Gs. Yeah.
2: Um,
1: I-, I could go on and on. There is a long list. So there are all kinds of scientific observations of nature's behavior that contradict, contradict either the presuppositions or the implications of materialism. Mm. And therefore, although materialism in itself is not a predictive scientific theory, it's a metaphysics, you must discard it because it doesn't stand up to empirical facts. Mm. So you can use science to inform metaphysics, to inform philosophy, But the moment you do that, you have to be consequential. You cannot apply this in a biased way, thinking that all of science uh, fits with materialism, actually very little. Now, the last point I wanted to make on this question, you talked about the explanatory power. Um, Explanatory power has to do with how well you can reduce a phenomenon. Mm. To reduce a phenomenon in this jargon for how can you explain that phenomenon in terms of something else in order to be able to state that there is nothing to that phenomenon, but that something else, doing this or that. Um, That's explanation or reduction. Yes. Um, There is an important sense, maybe the most important sense, in which materialism has zero explanatory power because it cannot account for the qualities of experience. That's the so-called hard problem of consciousness. which has led some some materialists to the ludicrous desperate move to say well consciousness actually doesn't exist and if it doesn't exist we don't need to reduce it consciousness is an illusion mm-hmm. which immediately backfires because to have an illusion you need to be conscious <laughs> consciousness is the one consciousness is the one thing that is undeniable but people find uh, archaic uh, uh, atrociously complex uh, lines of conceptual reasoning to get themselves all tied up and in order to be able to hand wave and say, oh, behind that that mist of all kinds of conceptual complexity, there is something that saves materialism. Well, good. If you want to believe that, <laughs> go right ahead. I, for one, think it's complete nonsense. It's It's the most ridiculous idea ever conceived by the human mind in philosophy or otherwise. So I think, yes, we should look into explanatory power and we should look into the possibilities that uh, um, empirical observations that are reliable may contradict the premises or implications of certain metaphysics. And, and we should discard those metaphysics if that's the case and mm. leave on the running only those that cannot be discarded that way.
0: To stick on what you're talking about, I mean, let's obviously bring up some names. I mean... Daniel Dennett, Keith Frankish, you've got Michael Graziano, Joshua Bach, uh, Metzinger. A lot of these guys have found ways. I mean, even people like Patricia Churchland, Paul Churchland, with the eliminative materialism. Illusionism is a. It seems to be a thriving philosophy. And a lot of them... <laughs> Not <laughs> anymore. I love you. I love you.
1: 20 yeah. years ago, maybe.
0: <laughs> <laughs> a lot of a lot of their, their data comes from this. Well, even Anil Seth comes, but he comes from it at a very different angle. He doesn't necessarily call it an illusion, but but inherently, I mean, he's definitely going along that line at some point. But they use a, quite a similar uh, analogy. I mean, you're talking about this dashboard, right? And we're all in the middle of this plane. We're perhaps, I mean, you can't see the outside world. You can't see that it's all mind. But I mean, Dennett or Frankish, I mean, they're they're using the Illusion, the user Illusion desktop. Um, if you've got icons, you can click on the icon and you're able to actually determine. You can click on it, but you know that actually this recycling bin, I mean, if you throw a lot of things into it, the, you're not really throwing things away. It's, it's an algorithm based on something that that has somehow given you this this interpretation, this representation of what would be thrown away but nothing's inherently thrown away. Therefore, it's not a real entity. It must be an illusion. So therefore, the way we interpret seeing, perceiving, taking in these light waves, um, a similar phenomenon must occur. Now I can tell you that Frankish, when we discussed, I mean, we had almost a three hour conversation. um, He he talks about quasi-phenomenal thoughts. So he does not necessarily consider phenomenal consciousness, I mean, sorry, consciousness to be an illusion. But he does consider the phenomenal feel of consciousness to be an illusion. So, so, so Tim, it's, it's, it's the way we interpret the way we feel we're conscious that's the problem. Um, what, what, what are your thoughts on illusionism as a theory of consciousness? I know Galen Strawson once called it, I think it was the stupidest idea in the history of philosophy. I can't remember that, I'm paraphrasing. But what are
1: your thoughts on that overall? He called it the weirdest idea yeah, the in weirdest. The of philosophy. but he <laughs> meant the stupidest idea in the history of <laughs> philosophy okay you ask for a, a lot of things and i like to give very explicit and precise answers so i have to talk a lot because you brought up oh, go ahead minutes. i mean
0: the floor is yours this is all about yeah. your your view and your of so comment. the
1: first thing to to uh, you mentioned a new Seth and what a new Seth says he's not a philosopher by the way he's a scientist um his point is that um the same mental mechanisms that create the experience of dreams are creating the experience of reality because dreams feel real the difference is that when you are awake that dream that internal dreaming is is um, modulated by external states while you are asleep Mm -hmm. it's not modulated by external states so the whole of reality is a kind of dream and in that sense an illusion now what does that the use of the word illusion means. It means that what we think to perceive around us is not what the world actually is. Now, let me put it more precisely. The illusion is that a content of consciousness is not an entirely truthful representation of whatever it is that it might be representing. The contents of consciousness are illusory. For instance, if I play one of those games full of optical illusions, what I think I'm seeing, like whether a square on a, on a checkered board is, is, is it gray or is it white? And I look at it and I think it's white. And then it can be shown to me that it has the same RGB value as a gray uh, square. So, therefore, a content of my consciousness did not accurate, accurately correspond with external states of affairs. And therefore, it's illusional. Mm. So the illusion applies to the contents of consciousness. When things are not the way they seem to be, then the contents of my consciousness are illusory. So let's take illusionism illusionism to the extreme and say, all contents of consciousness are illusory. Does that prove that consciousness doesn't exist? Or does that imply that only consciousness exists because all of its contents are illusions. Of course, it's the latter. It's a game of words that is being played. Uh, many of our contents of consciousness are illusory. But precisely because of that, they are eminently conscious. Because illusions only exist in consciousness. They don't exist in the external states of affair, affairs. Mm. That's what illusions mean. It's only an experience in consciousness. If I see a flying dragon spitting fire above my house, that proves I am conscious. It does, it, it, but they think it proves the opposite. <laughs> it proves that I am not conscious. Now, to, to understand how they can play this game, we have to really go into the details. So to, uh, I, I cannot do that for all the names you mentioned, but I'll try to do that with two or three, just to convey the, the impression that I have looked into it. <laughs> Uh, That I've made the supreme effort to try to take these people seriously (laughs) and read their stuff and and, and with some charitable intent. Um, Let's take um, Keith. Keith's illusionism is premised on the following. The brain has very complex structure and dynamics. So the brain cannot represent itself accurately to itself. So if the brain needs a representation of itself, per force, it needs to be a simplified representation. That's logical. Now, a computer cannot compute itself other than by being itself. If the computer needs an internal model of itself, that model is per force simpler than the computer, because the computer needs all this stuff around the model in order to run it. Mm. So for Keith, consciousness or phenomenality is a simplified representation the brain produces of itself. And in that sense, consciousness is an illusion. But let's, this second step now has a lot of hand waving, (laughs) a lot of hand waving. It starts well, and then suddenly there is a magical big bang. (laughs) And then the final conclusion is extracted. What is that magical Big Bang in Keith's terms? Keith says, consciousness is a neural process that represents the brain in a simplified and inaccurate manner. That's why experience feels totally different than neuronal networks. Mm. Because experience is a simplified and ultimately mistaken representation of those neural networks. Fine. But since there are only neural networks, then that representation itself has to be a neural network. Mm. But it doesn't feel like a neural network. Well, it's because it has a meta model that represents itself in a simplified and incorrect manner. Yeah, there is a meta model, but that meta model too can only be a neural network because there is nothing other than neural networks. You see where this is going? It's infinite regress. Mm-hmm. And to hide the infinite re- regress, there is a lot of hand waving terminology complexity being brought up to create that sense that they are onto something, but you just can't pin it down by precisely what. No, there's nothing there. It's all smoke and mirrors. If it looks incoherent, it's because it is flat-out incoherent. Let's take another one, Michael Gratiano, who is the guy who is famously on record saying, consciousness doesn't happen. (laughs) It doesn't exist.
0: Um, Michael refers to it as a caricature.
1: Yeah, but so he gets a lot of press because it seems to circumvent the hard problem of consciousness. Mm. If consciousness doesn't happen, we don't need to reduce it to yes. quantities, and therefore, no hard problem. I <laughs> know, hooray! Uh, um, and therefore, he makes the cover of uh, uh, popular science magazines. <laughs> but then we go and look deeper. What exactly is the argument? The argument has absolutely nothing to do with phenomenal consciousness, which is what is entailed by the hard problem, it has nothing to do with it. The the argument has everything to do with a model of the self, Mm. a model of the individual entity. Um, And then Michael goes on to say that, to to, to argue that that model cannot be right. Mm. Yes, of course it cannot be right. Our model of the self is an illusion. But we're not talking about the model of the self. We're talking about phenomenal consciousness. You don't need a model of the self to be phenomenally conscious. Mm. Phenomenal consciousness is defined as the quality of there being something it is like to be an entity. If there is something it is like to be you, then you're conscious. If there is something it is like to be a cat, the cat's conscious. If there is something it is like to be a mosquito, then a the mosquito is conscious. Mm. They do not need to have metacognition, self-awareness, models of the self and as an agent, in order to have phenomenal states or experiential states in order for there to be something it is like to be a mosquito
2: yeah
1: uh, so the whole argument of gratiano is a rather pathetic straw man he, he what he actually refutes is the accuracy of the model of the self as an agent that would never win him headlines because it's trivially true He's not the first to demonstrate this mm. and won't be the last. It's trivially true and has absolutely nothing to do with the hard problem of consciousness. But he, if, if he wouldn't sell his stuff this way, no, he wouldn't be on the cover of magazines <laughs> because people would just yawn or just, oh yeah, yeah, our model of the self as agents is not accurate. Congratulations, you reinvented the wheel. No, you have abs- you, your conclusion has zero philosophical significance, and and stuff like this. Yeah, I think some people are sincere. I think mm. Keith is sincere. I think he has managed to tie himself up so much in conceptual knots mm. that uh, he he lost sight of the simplicity of the thing. He lost sight. He lost touch with reality. He lost touch with the presence of mind the presence of consciousness itself. He's off to the races in a world of pure abstraction and he's fighting some domino game in that world of pure abstraction, but he's sincere and honest, I think. But other stuff really makes you think, you know, are all these people really sincere? Because in the case of Graziano, I wrote an entire essay, basically making these points very carefully published by the Institute of Art and Ideas. And he replied to that essay. And the only thing he says in the reply is that I am a woo-woo mystic. So he didn't even bother to look at my website to see who I was. Um, it's it's surreal. It's surreal what's going on out there. Yeah, uh, um, we we could go, we could go yeah. on and on. If we, if you want me to go on, give me a name and I'll discuss that <laughs> name.
0: Okay, so I will. I will. Let's do that. I mean, let, let's take into account Daniel Dennett, for example. I mean, what a lot of philosophers and scientists do, they, they, they sort of, it's either they learn from someone who teaches them a lot of their philosophies, and that's where they get their view from, or they look up to certain people and gather a lot of their information and wisdom from those people. So take, for example, Daniel Dennett. I mean, he often mentions four people who really influence his life. I think Darwin's one of them. David Hume's another one. Alan Turing's the other, and I can't forget the fourth one.
1: His teacher. Uh, sorry? His teacher. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The father of behaviorism.
0: Yes, exactly. So so now when you put together those types of people and their philosophies, it's easy to see how he's going to become someone who's a reductive materialist who perhaps will somehow come to a conclusion that consciousness is an illusion. And so what I want to ask you is when you talk about your philosophical history of the mind-body problem? Who do you think have played the biggest roles in this question, um, um, in this problem, and will give us the solution? Because it often gives us an idea of how you come to conceptualize this issue and why these people you look up to, have read, have somehow provided us some insight into the problem.
1: You mean uh, the the people who played the most influential role in idealism or, or in general for any metaphysics?
0: No, if, So specifically with regards to the mind-body problem in this case?
1: In the Western tradition, um, we cannot ignore Barclay for uh, epistemic reasons. I don't think his ontology works for reasons we already discussed. Uh, but the epistemic value that he brought forth was that uh, we are always cooped up in mind so, everything that is in mind, that is in consciousness, is perforce a theoretical abstraction. Whether right or wrong is up to discussion, but we can only touch it through a theoretical abstraction because we are always cooped up in mental space, in conscious uh, space. Whatever we are not conscious of at all might as well not exist. Um, so, Barclay has, an important, has played an important role uh, on the epistemology of the West, even though mm. his ontology. Yeah, he needs Deus ex machina. He needs to say God holds the states of the world when we are not looking because to be is to to be perceived. So if nobody's perceiving, then God is. And yeah, okay. But that doesn't seem to solve much. Um, After Barclay, uh, Kant is at the root of the idealist ontology in the West. Um, Speaking only after the Renaissance, because if we go back to Plato and Parmenides and Empedocles, then they were idealists too, but I will assume that that's too far removed for, for this conversation. <laughs> um, so Kant made clear that uh, whatever the world as it is in itself is, the noumenon or the noumena, the collection of noumenons, whatever that is, we don't have direct access to it. All we have is how the noumena are represented in our cognitive states which he called the phenomena Mm. which is still the root of the word phenomenal states when we mean experiential states um and and he sort of tried to decree the end of metaphysics by saying you know if metaphysics is speculation about the noumena the world as it is in itself then we might as well stop because all we have are the phenomena. Um, After Kant, arguably, uh, Nietzsche is the one who kept that idea alive the longest, uh, all the way into the late 19th century, the notion that let's just drop metaphysics uh, because we have no access to the thing in itself. All we have access to is how it presents itself to us, which is not the same as the thing in itself. But immediately after Kant and his life overlapped with Kant for a decade, I think. Mm. Uh, I forgot exactly Kant's uh, 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 death uh, date. Um, But uh, Schopenhauer, uh, he took Kant a step further and revived metaphysics by saying, well, we do not have access to all the things in themselves, I agree, but there is one exception to that, and that's us. We are also existent. We are also a thing in itself. And we do not need the intermediation of perception, of phenomena, uh, to become acquainted with us. In, In your case, you. In my case, me. Because even if I had no eyes, no nose, no tongue, no ears, and my skin was totally not sensitive, in other words, I have no perceptions whatsoever, there would still be something it is like to be me. I would still have desires and fears, which he called the will. Um, That was his way to to describe what we today would call endogenous experiential states, because we have experiential, uh, we have uh, perceptual states, things that we see, hear, taste, smell, touch and feel, but we also have things that have nothing to do with perception, like thoughts, fantasies, memories, desires, fears. Um, And these are endogenous feelings. You would still have them even if you didn't perceive anything. And for Schopenhauer, those endogenous experiential states were the thing in itself when it came to us. And he called all of them the will. So we are the will. And we are represented as the body. The body is what the will looks like when it's observed from the outside. Um, And then he went further and he said, and the body is made of matter. Therefore, matter is what the will looks like when represented. Mm. And if that's the case, when it comes to me, unless I postulate an arbitrary discontinuity in nature, then the same should apply to all matter. Because why would matter be one thing when it comes to me and something totally else when it comes to the rest of, of nature? So he said, nature is will. And matter is what the wheel looks like when represented cognitively. Uh, and he revived metaphysics mm. because he found a loophole in Kant's denial of metaphysics, which is we can't access the noumena, right? But there is one exception. And that exception is incredibly important because we can extrapolate from it. Um, and I think he, Schopenhauer in the Western tradition, he's the greatest idealist. Um, he passed the, cho- the torch on to a non-philosopher, <laughs> um, to, to Jung, Carl Jung, the psychologist, who, who read Schopenhauer when he was 14. Um, Imagine
0: reading Schopenhauer at 14 and grasping that. that yeah,
1: <laughs> and, and that was so significant for Jung that it made it all the way into his autobiography written about two years before he died at eighty six. So uh, of all the things he forgot of his life, which is most of it, he remembered that. Um, And he basically further developed Schopenhauer's philosophy under the guise of psychology. Well, under the guise looks like it was a cheat. It was not a cheat. Uh, Jung was an empirical scientist. Unlike Freud, he tried to ground everything in empirical observation. Even his hypothesis of the collective unconscious, he waited 10 years gathering <laughs> empirical grounding before he even talked about it. Uh, but, you know, whether science or philosophy, the point is he further developed mm. the um, the spirit, yes. the geist of uh, Schopenhauer's worldview. So I would say, Kant, Schopenhauer and Jung.
0: What do you think? I mean, because obviously Kant... I mean, sorry. Obviously, Schopenhauer and Jung have deeply influenced you. Um, and, and for someone to dedicate their life to writing books on these people, what do you think drew you most
1: to these two guys, specifically? Can you repeat it? What do I think what?
0: So, with regards to Schopenhauer and, and uh, sorry, not Kant, Jung. Jung, what do you think, because you've dedicated books to these guys, so you've obviously taken the time out. I mean, writing is a very... Very tedious, a long process. Not tedious for everyone, but it's a long process that requires a lot of effort. I mean, what drew you towards these two people the most?
1: Jung, I came across when I was fourteen. <laughs> Myself, oh, awesome. wow, that's actually quite. That's. <laughs> I, I was I was uh, on a holiday in the mountains, and uh, was just browsing through a bookstore, and there was a book with a wonderful, beautiful. Uh, 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 cover, you know, when you're a 14 year old, you buy books by the cover (laughs) (laughs) and that had a beautiful cover with a strange symbol, lots of little symbols it was the I Ching the Chinese oracle Um, and um, I started browsing that book and there was a foreword by one Carl Gustav Jung and uh, and that was an eye opener for me because I would have dismissed that as a silly oracle Mm -hmm. and that's all there is to it if it weren't for that forward, that forward open, it's like a slightly different perspective, a slanted perspective. You know, if you're looking at the book this way, it's a silly oracle. But if you just do like this, oh, there is something there that, oh, no, no. You see, that's what Jung did uh, for me. And I proceeded to read his collected works. I don't think there are many people in the world, even amongst Jungians, who have read Jung's collective collected works because it's twenty very thick volumes.
0: It's a very it's very difficult to get through it all. I mean, I have a collection of Jung books. I mean, there's the red set and the black set, and they, it's it's very difficult to get through. I, in fact, today while at work, I saw a patient who quoted Jung to me during a psych um, a medical consult who who was completely obsessed with his philosophy and his psychology. Uh, and you can see how deeply ingrained he can sort of imprint into someone. So I completely see it.
1: <laughs> so it, I'll, I'll give you a, um, a hint on how to uh, make your way through that. Your first read of his collected works, you have to completely ignore the footnotes and endnotes.
0: Oh, definitely. Do not, not read <laughs> them
1: <laughs> because it will break the flow of the argument. It does. Because, and it's half the book. Yes, you know, uh, uh, so don't do that. Yeah. Uh, only yeah. on your this second or third week.
0: Continues. I mean, he's got so much to say that a footnote is, is as difficult to read than someone else's entire
1: book. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Jung was a scholar uh, of a kind. Brilliant. Don't make more of, <laughs> you know, uh, there aren't people like that, any- like that anymore. And yeah. he, he was already unique in his time. Uh, so we haven't made people like that for, for a few centuries um so he was a singularity in human nature <laughs> um what attracted me in him i don't know it's a kind of recognition and i cannot justify it through logical steps of reasoning <laughs> I, it's just a resonance a recognition uh, i've always been fascinated by by his work because every page is like yeah yeah he got it you know what i mean every page is like that yes yes um, it's like I can see it through his eyes. Mm. Um, Schopenhauer is completely different. I I knew of Schopenhauer until my early 40s, but I didn't know Schopenhauer. Um, and then I stumbled upon an essay or an article. Oh no! I know where. I know what. I read a little book. There is an interesting series by Oxford University Press called uh, "A Very Short Introduction." Mm. So, many topics. So, there's Jung, a very short introduction. Schopenhauer, a very short introduction. Uh, uh, Set theory, a very short introduction. Some of them are great. Um, uh, A very short introduction to Nietzsche is one of the the best books on Nietzsche. But Schopenhauer, a very short introduction, which is what I read, is a catastrophe of scholarship. It's a complete disaster. It's someone who read Schopenhauer without understanding the first thing about what Schopenhauer is trying to say and then writing a summary that is, in essence, a criticism of Schopenhauer. It's pathetic because you see that the guy didn't understand anything, but he feels entitled to go and criticize a man who is no longer around to defend himself. And, and I got a clue that that was going on because this person... Uh, uh, his name is uh, Christopher Janway. Janway quoted from Schopenhauer's works, out of context so you know how these things are, you have to be very careful about quotes but even out of context, I would read the quote and I would think, yeah, I I see a sense in which this makes sense and Janway would proceed to tear that quote as, as if it were complete nonsense and full of internal contradictions and I was like Am I missing something? This sounds reasonable to me. So I went ahead and read The World as Will and Representation, third edition, both volumes, 1,200 pages, in very, very tiny script and very, very thin pages. Um, And it was a revelation. Mm -hmm. If you take out um, the the ancillary stuff, like Schopenhauer's Theory of Women, If you yeah. take out that <laughs> kind of uh, no uh, uh, ethical,
0: you got to get rid of the. I mean, it's we we have to take everything within their time. It's you can't live. Yeah. Their, it's not, nothing exists in a vacuum.
1: But but I have an objective criteria, criterion criterion Take out everything that is not metaphysics. Yeah. Take out everything that is just a frustrated old man <laughs> trying to settle scores. Take all that out and focus on the metaphysics. He says nothing that is internally contradictory, even though scholars are saying, oh, Schopenhauer contradicts himself all the time. No, they didn't understand Schopenhauer. They're just stupid. The man was very clear. Because, and you can know that for sure because Schopenhauer repeats himself over and over and over again in different words. He's saying the same thing in the beginning, the middle and the end of his book in different words. You can see the effort, the lengths he went to to try to be unambiguous and avoid misinterpretation, and yet scholars who make a living out of misinterpreting actual philosophers uh, misinterpreted him left and right. But to me, the world as will and representation was a revelation. I mean, um,
0: I th- it's also amazing that Chopinau, throughout these years, managed to maintain his philosophy, um, because a lot of people tend to to sort of uh, flip flop on their ideas along
1: the way, especially today. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Philip Goff. <laughs> sorry. Sorry, didn't resist that little job. Um, sorry, Philip. I like you very much. I love you, man. But uh, you do change your mind rather often. Um, Schopenhauer, uh, he wrote the first edition of The World as Will and Representation is from 1818. The third is from 1853. Jeez. He didn't change a word. Yeah. He added another volume. He doubled the work. But he did not. And he, the ideas are all the same. He just added more substantiation to them. Uh, whatever he saw very, very early on, when he was still working with with uh, Goethe on color theory, which, by the way, was the biggest blunder of Goethe's life and Schopenhauer's life. But uh, let's <laughs> set that sad, that's sad <laughs> chapter of uh, <laughs> Western scholarship aside for a moment. Um, he saw something very early on that uh, was so crystal clear to him. It wasn't purely conceptual. It's not like you're moving the dominoes in your head and then two years on, you think, oh, I can put the dominoes together in a better way. That hallmark of philosophy as a purely conceptual exercise. And that's why analytic philosophers today change their mind so often. It's not embodied philosophy. It's philosophy done by one particular mental faculty, conceptual reasoning. And, and, and not based on all the other mental faculties we have mm. to make up what we call intelligence or, dare I say, wisdom, uh, which is completely lacking today. Um, he, he came to the world as will and representation with the wholeness of his mind. All his faculties were committed to that. And he embodied that philosophy. Uh, you, you can see that uh, in, in anecdotes, he, he had a poodle called Atman. Mm. Right? The problem is that Atman seems to have lived for 30 years. How is that possible that Atman the Poodle lived for 30 years? Well, it's because it was not one Poodle, it was several Poodles. But Schopenhauer's view was that uh, every Poodle was the same Poodle. It was the same mind, Mm. the same primordial form underlying the appearance of multiple Poodles. The different puddles were just differences in appearance, in appearance, but the will is unified, is unitary, uh, uh, because it's outside space-time. And space-time is the principium individuation, as you call it, the mm. principle of individuation, which in medieval scholasticism means the means by which things can be told apart or separate from each other. That's space-time. If there is no space-time, there cannot be individualization. Therefore, every poodle is the same poodle. It's the same wheel. The thing in itself is the same, even though the representation may be different. So every poodle he he had was called Atman. That's Schopenhauer living in an embodied form his philosophy.
0: I, I think it's it's so amazing to see how these ideas evolve over time. I mean. when we look back, we always realize we were living in sort of the zeitgeist of the time. I mean, at some point, we looked we viewed consciousness in the brain working as pumps and valves. Um, At some point, then it was kind of, okay, now we're looking at as computerized sort of programs and information. Uh, We tend to always adjust our theories according to the current uh, perception of the world. What I do want to know, Bernardo, from your side is um, this podcast, I mean, was to show just how difficult theoretically and practically the mind body problem is um and and the practicality comes from me being a doctor trying to figure out how how do i treat psychiatric patients um when i know that we don't know what consciousness is um fundamentally we're all struggling and baffling with this issue and we're looking at neurocorrelates correlates of consciousness and assuming we can treat certain brain issues when clearly it doesn't work for many people i mean there the, there's there's, there's clearly a problem here, how do we move past it? How do you think that your objective idealism or analytic idealism helps this scenario and can assist us as practitioners to, uh, to treat patients?
1: Well, let me start by saying what does not change because uh, I have learned over the years that it's important to preamble what <laughs> I'm about to say uh, this way. Yeah. Um, we should keep on looking at brain physiology and the neurocorrelates correlates of metaconsciousness we don't have the neurocorrelates correlates of consciousness because most of the studies have been done uh, based on uh, direct reports in other words the subject has to report having an experience and then you go and paste that experience next to the corresponding patterns of brain activity measured at the same time the problem is that to report an experience you not only have to have the experience you have to know that you have the experience, and that's already meta consciousness. It's not consciousness. My cat doesn't know he's tasting the food. He's tasting the food, but doesn't doesn't know that he's tasting the food because he doesn't have uh, that split between object and subject that we have. So that's meta cognition, meta consciousness. Having made that disclaimer, we should continue to look at that. We should continue to take uh, drugs seriously. I take an antidepressant. It's an off-label use for extreme tinnitus. I take amitriptyline, which is a tricyclic uh, cholinergic uh, uh, um, uh, um, yeah, antidepressant. Yes. Um, it helps my tinnitus. It does reduce my tinnitus. It also helps deal with, anxi- with my anxiety. Yeah. So I am not going to stand here and tell you that drugs are a farce. Some drugs are a farce. You can question whether SSRIs, given the data we now have, should have been released, given that the improvement of a placebo is so incredibly small. Yes. um, I don't think that holds for tricyclic uh, antidepressants. Uh I know that from first-person experience. Um, And the way I regard it is is simple. For an idealist, there is only mind. Mm -hmm. So that little pill I pop every evening that pill is what a transpersonal process, mental process in nature looks like when represented on my dashboard. When I ingest that mental process that was out there and now I put it inside me, that mental process interferes with the mental processes that were already in me, namely my anxiety. And that one mental process has a causa effect on the other is trivial. Your thoughts modulate your emotions. Your emotions modulate your thoughts. A pill of amitriptyline modulates my anxiety because that pill is a representation. The thing in itself is an originally transpersonal mental process that Mm -hmm. was out there, and by ingesting it, I brought it into the boundaries of my individual mind, Mm -hmm. my dissociated self. Um, I take drugs seriously. I think psychiatric drugs are... They can be lifesavers, and and they have been uh, lifesavers. I think brain surgery works. We know that empirically. And if somebody comes up with a metaphysics that has as an implication that no brain surgery should work, then that metaphysics is false. My metaphysics doesn't do that because the surgeon's scalpel is what a mental process looks like that you're bringing to interfere with your own mental processes and your own own mental processes look like your brain. Yeah. So this is all the dashboard representation of a dance of mental processes that can be very helpful to the individual. Now, having said all this, the difference. The difference is the following. If your brain actually is not the generator of your mind, but what your mind looks like when represented on a dashboard, now psychological therapy is the, is the third axis of treatment. Yes. It's not only popping a pill, it's not only a scalpel cutting into your brain. Talk therapy should not be considered a, a placebo-only thing, uh, because if through talking, you are modulating your inner mental processes. Then you are doing the same thing as a pill, yes. or a scalpel, just in a different way. You see what I mean? And we there are, uh, th- there is literature showing, for instance, that uh, there is one very well documented case of hypnosis curing uh, widespread warts. You know, warts caused by a virus uh, on the surface of the skin. Exactly. Some people have a very weak immune response to that virus, and they are covered in warts. Yes. There was a guy in in Southeast Asia that was called the tree man because his skin looked like like bark. Yes. Um, And there is at at least one very well-documented case in which hypnosis got rid of warts. Hypnosis got rid of the result of a virus infection. Um, There are very well-documented cases very recently of placebo knee surgery getting rid of knee pain. Yeah, which is sort of the archetypical instance of a very physical problem.
0: I think an, right. another great example is cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia. When you look at the rates of zolpidem or, or or benzodiazepines to try and get people to sleep, um, the long-term rates of just cognitive behavioral therapy and talk therapy, the the rates of decreasing insomnia are much better. I mean, you do it, it's a much better long-term solution. So that's another way. And which psychotherapy actually is a lot more beneficial.
1: Exactly. So if you ask me where this is going, where analytic idealism would bring this, to summarize it in a very clear way, it will bring down the wall between psychological therapy and psychiatry. Mm-hmm. This this division is merely epistemic. It, it has no ontological grounding whatsoever. Talk therapy is a form of taking a pill, is yeah. a form of cutting into a brain. Uh, And we have all kinds of clues about this. We call it uh, neuroplasticity. (laughs) Mm. Um, So that's one case in your profession in, in which I think things would change. We would stop regarding the body as a mechanism and doctors as car mechanics, because that's too confining a paradigm. We are leaving too many tools off the table the moment we have this prejudice and we act according to this prejudice. Health. We regard health as uh, there is psychological health and there is physical health. Idealism says they are one and the same thing. And therefore, both approaches from both sides make sense. How far can can we bring well-being if we didn't make that distinction anymore, if we allowed for the synergies to be researched, studied and applied without prejudice? Um, I would go as far as to say, and there, there, there was a group of doctors who tried to propose it 10 or 15 years ago, and I think they got shut down for very um, easy to understand reasons. But we have to leverage the placebo effect. Even if physicalism is discombobulated by it, doesn't know how it can happen, it doesn't matter that we don't know how. We know it happens, all right? So even if you're a physicalist and you think it shouldn't happen, well, you know it happens. So let's use it. Let's leverage it. The problem is that it would entail doctors lying to patients. But you see, before 20th century medicine, that's all doctors had. No, the, the best doctors were the doctors with good, bad manners, as <laughs> bad side manners, as they would, they would call they would say. Doctors <laughs> with a lot of personal presence would come to the patient and say, I studied you, I heard you, and you will be fine. Yes. Now, they had no clue what they were talking about. They they would order no blood screening, no urine screening, no x-rays, nothing. They didn't have a clue. But lo and behold, two days later, the patient would stand up and be fine. We
0: we see this today, Bernardo. I mean, you get a bunch of doctors together. They set up these IV bars, IV drips, and they put you in a nice lounge couch. They put up just a saline drip tell you this is going to help your joints, your body, you're going to feel revitalized. And when you leave, you feel revitalized. It's yeah, it's just the way it is. The placebo effect
1: works and we just yeah. need to know how to use this. So we should use it, but we cannot use it like this group of doctors was putting forward a while ago, because there, there is research saying that the placebo effect works even if you know it's placebo. Yeah, but the, the, the efficiency is reduced. Yes. I would go out on a limb and say, let's leverage it fully. Let's have doctors lie to the patients. It's part of the professional skill of the doctor who, to know when it's safe to lie to the patient.
0: Yeah, so you learn, so, to, so not just blindly go about it unethically, but to actually exactly. apply some, some reason. And,
1: you know, I would, go, I would even go further and say, part of the reasons why cancer is so deadly it's because when you get the diagnosis, you know you're going to die. And then it, lo and behold, it kills you because research shows that if you do an autopsy in people who died of car accidents, the most unbiased sampling of the population you can have because everybody gets into a car, half the people have mini tumors, cancerous <laughs> mini tumors, which is much higher than the statistics would suggest. Yeah, And, and the conclusion is most of those mini tumors go nowhere they resolve by themselves but you know you will be a very unlucky person if you happen to go for a full body screen and they catch one of the mini tumors and they tell you you have cancer that one is not going to resolve itself Especially that one is going to kill you
0: imminent prior huh?
1: yeah <laughs> so you know it, this would change if idealism is is embodied not only accepted Mm. but embodied and i'm talking only about medicine many other things would change the outlook on life our understanding of the meaning of life the way we relate to others to animals to nature at large
0: i want to Uh, i want you to touch on that because ideally this podcast is also about how does this theoretical and practical difficulty of the mind-body problem impact spirituality morality um, mortality how how, how would your view now impact these aspects of
1: I think what we call life, metabolism, biology, is the dashboard representation of a dissociative process in the mind of nature, that field of subjectivity that I think underlies all nature. We know people undergo dissociation, uh, dissociative identity disorder um, in the DSM-5. Uh, we know that dissociation looks like something. That's the work of Yolanda Schlumpf in 2014 in the Netherlands. You know, fMRI scans of people with DID and actors pretending to be dissociated. You can discern the two very easily uh, uh, blind without knowing the actual patient. Um, So I think it's a very similar phenomenon um, that happens in that field of subjectivity underlying our nature, a form of dissociation. Um, And that also looks like something, just like the dissociative processes in the brain of a patient with DID, they look like something on their brain scan a higher level of dissociation in nature looks like something what metabolism life i think that's what life is life is what the dissociative process in the mind of nature looks like death is the end of life so it's the end of the dissociation it's the reintegration of your cognitive inner space into a broader cognitive context Um, and if you understand death this way then two things happen one Your personal self ends because your personal self is the dissociation. But it ends in the same way that um, your dream avatar ends when you wake up. Mm. Your dream avatar is a dissociative process within your own mind. You think you're your dream avatar and you think you are not doing the rest of the dream. The world of the dream. You think you inhabit it. Mm. When you wake up, your dream avatar is dead and you realize, oh, I was doing the whole thing. I was never the dream avatar. The dream avatar was me. And you don't go and mourn the death of your dream avatar. So yes, I think our personal self ends. Hooray to that. This is a state of consciousness supremely vulnerable to suffering. Um, So um, maybe that's a prejudice of mine. I, I, I like this idea. I believe it for objective reasons. But in addition to believing it, I like this idea very much. But, your I-ness, what Schopenhauer described as the one eye of the world that looks out from every creature, and this is a precise quote of the of the um, one of the translations uh, of Schopenhauer's uh, work. Um, then the real you doesn't end for the same reason that the real you survives, your waking up in the morning. Mm. Nothing is lost. Just your state of consciousness changes. I think that's death. but it it changes life this understanding of death, because because now, unlike the physicalist notion that, um, for instance, our emotions are just side effects of brain physiology that had an evolutionary advantage, even things like empathy, uh, if you look at the work of Antonio Damasio, even empathy is supposed to have an evolutionary advantage because it gives you social cachet to help another member of the tribe. So you stand a better chance to survive because the rest of the tribe will want to help you since you help them. Um, but the feeling of empathy, the feeling of suffering along, like I suffer along with Ukrainians, or at least I did for the first three weeks uh, after the war to a point that I was dysfunctional, that suffering along is is a byproduct. It, it It's for no reason. It's useless. So why will you make an effort to face and integrate your traumas your demons the skeletons in your closet why will you even try to mature there is nothing to be gained because once you're dead all of your experiential states are gone all of your insights accumulated through a lifetime of suffering they are for nothing they end because you know they are they are side effects of brain structure and if the brain is not there anymore it decomposes itself then they are gone Then it's lost it's for nothing Suffering is for nothing. Mat- maturing is for nothing. Uh, the best thing you can do if you want to accumulate something in life, you're better off accumulating pairs of shoes because they will survive your death. <laughs> the only thing that exists is matter. So the only conceivable meaning of life is to accumulate matter for as long as you have, right? And as, as for all the difficult parts of things you're suffering, well, try to distract yourself away from them. Pop SSRIs—that's the evil side of uh, psychiatry.
0: So you know, don't. So the great philosopher Madonna was was right when she said, "If we're living in a material world, a material
1: you're... girl." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, this this is not sad in that many words, but you breathe it in our culture. We are in a culture in which in which ad- patterns of addiction have become the way of life. Uh, and when I say addiction, I don't mean only alcohol addiction or drug addiction. I mean all the other addictions, sugar, meat, television, sex, porn, uh, and all the other distraction, uh, ego, ego, ego massages, people are, many people are addicted to that. Many, many a CEO are addicted uh, to that. Um, and it's because there is nothing else. Everything else becoming immature, psychologically mature, learning accumulating wisdom, insight, uh, deriving or or squeezing water from the rock of suffering, Uh, the, the alchemical transmutation of shit to gold, which Jung correctly said is a psychological process. It's a metaphor for the psychological process of turning suffering into wisdom, into understanding, into becoming a mature human being all of that which is off the table under the premises uh, of of physicalism as a metaphysics or materialism, whatever you want to call it, now they are back on the table in a way that gives us a totally different perspective into life because now if we are dissociative processes while alive, because that's what life is and is an image of that dissociation, um, the insights you accumulate through a life of suffering when you die, death being the end of the dissociation, they are now seeded into a broader cognitive context. It's a contribution to nature, which makes you wonder. You know, when when our ancestors depicted death or the reaper as a faceless figure carrying a harvesting instrument, um, were they not seeing something there? Because that may be that may be the closest metaphor you know uh, i'm not for human sacrifice because we are all going to die anyway there is no reason to speed it up right? <laughs> so i'm i'm not for human sacrifice or for any sacrifice or for suicide i think it's our moral obligation to make the best you we can of mm. the state that nature took mm. 13.8 billion well 9.8 billion years to bring about on this planet um, so we should we should milk it to the end that said i can understand the intuition behind preliterate so- preliterate societies that practiced sacrifice because if you consider mind at large the transpersonal mental processes of nature you call it god for the sake of argument and you consider death the end of a dissociative process in the mind of the divinity then that's the way you make the insights of a lifetime available to God. That's the sense in which sacrifice is is not a completely arbitrary intuition. It's definitely an immoral, wrong, short-sighted, despicable uh, implication derived from that intuition. But the intuition itself may have a root uh, in nature. And if you embody this understanding, you no longer collect shoes, man. What you collect is insight. And you no longer make your life about you, which is the greatest insanity of the Western mind. Um, And by the Western mind, I don't mean only the European mind. South Africa is a Western country. Brazil is a Western country.
0: Uh, I mean, South Africa Africa is a Western country, for sure.
1: Yeah. The greatest insanity of the Western mind uh, is to think... That my life is about me, that your life is about you, and his life is about him. Because we are part of nature. Our lives are not about us. And one of the understandings you get is not only that you want to collect insights and become mature, because that's your contribution to the divinity, if you want to use that word. That's the sense of your life. But not only that, your life is not about you. It's about that contribution. Mm. Your life is about what nature wants to do through you. And and the moment you embody this, the moment it sinks into the body is the moment when you will no longer suffer from the anxiety of knowing that you're not happy yet and you have to be happy because the other guys are happy on social media. Look at the photos they published. But you don't manage to be happy. So something is wrong with you. Something is terribly wrong with with you. So you pile suffering. You pile meta-suffering on top of suffering. Now, if you understand what probably, actually, is going on, that stops. That spiral of mass suffering stops because you understand, one, it's not about you has never been and, or will ever be and every moment of suffering is nature trying to get somewhere through you. And the, the only thing that is expected from you is to pay attention. That's the sum total of a life well lived. Pay attention. Hmm. That's it. If you grasp that, what will happen to you is you stop watching broadcast television <laughs> because it, it's just distraction. <laughs> it's nonsensical.
0: Like it's, it's like Socrates. I mean, an unexamined life is a life not worth living, eh?
1: Yes. Yes. Socrates was had, had his eyes on the ball. Yeah. Uh, Parmenides had his eyes on the ball. Western culture was born with its eyes on the ball and then from Aristotle on it's a downhill disaster, (laughs) (laughs) but every now and then somebody bumps against the what's actually going on again, and they tend to write books about it Kant bumps against against it Schopenhauer bumps against it. Um, uh, uh, John's Cotus Erigena in the ninth century bumped against it. um, I, I want to give you some ob- obscure names. Um, Nicolas von Kus, a German philosopher from the 15th century, he was also uh, a, a cardinal of the Catholic Church. Hmm. He had his eye, he bumped against it as well. Lots of people bumped against it. Jung bumped against it. Um, so we, we are not totally lost because when we are about to sink into the darkest abyss, somebody bumps against it again and brings hope again. You see the lighthouse far in the horizon. It's a beacon. You're not there. You're in the middle of the storm. You're about to drown. But you see the lighthouse. You see, it's not completely hopeless yet. So, yeah, let's see how this will unfold.
0: a while you bump against it as well, um, with the, uh, standing on the shoulders of those giants, do, what do you think, and who do you think have provided with you, have, have provided you, sorry, with some of the most coherent logical counter-arguments to your view of
1: consciousness? The best argument it doesn't mean that it's a good argument. it's It's the less bad argument. The least bad argument uh, <laughs> is a common one. Uh, if I have to attribute it to one person, I will attribute it to Heather Hassel Mock, mm-hmm. a philosopher from Norway, who is at um University of New York now, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and she said that uh, while we are going down the staircase of a building in Shanghai, <laughs> um, we are both going to a dinner. And, uh, and she said, well, the reason to not buy fully into your idealism is that uh, obviously we are uh, um, compound entities. Our brain is made of cells, is made of neurons. So we are not unitary entities. So consciousness cannot be unitary. She's a panpsychist. So Mm. you can see where this is coming from. Uh, So consciousness has to be built from smaller parts because the subject is built out of smaller parts, because the brain is built of neurons. You see the line of reasoning. The brain is made of neurons. Therefore, the subject is made of parts. Therefore, consciousness is made of parts. That's the line of reasoning. It seems to be a very good argument uh, against a non-panpsychist or non-physicalist interpretation of the facts. The problem is the very very first step is wrong. (laughs) Um, The brain is not made of neurons. Uh, This keyboard is made of keys. Somebody put the keys in there. This keyboard was assembled. Its structure was defined from the outside in. Uh, and and determined by the way the proper parts of the keyboard were brought together from the outside. A brain was not assembled. A brain has grown. The neurons are a nominal carving out of the brain in apparent parts. Mm -hmm. But nobody has ever brought the neurons together to assemble a brain. So how did the brain come about? Well, it started as a zygote. Yeah. Now a zygote is not a compound object in the sense that it's not made of cells. It is one cell. That that's who we were um, the day we were uh, the the egg from your mother was fertilized by one sperm spermatozoid from from your father. That's what we were. We were a zygote. And this argument I just mentioned doesn't apply to the zygote. Obviously, the zygote's not made of cells, right? So why is the brain made of neurons? How, how did that happen? And what happened is that the zygote developed fractal inner structure through mitosis, through cell division. Why do I say fractal? Because mitosis uh, is a way to create internal structure in a self-similar way. When a cell divides, the resulting parts look like the original cell. And that's self-similar. And one way to to say that it's self similar is to say that it's fractal. So we still are the zygote. You are the zygote. You are that entity. I am the zygote that was in the womb of, uh, of my mother. The difference is our zygotes have developed fractal inner structure. They were not assembled. They were not put together as parts. They just complexified internally, so the brain is not made of neurons, that's a purely nominal epistemic way to regard the brain. So we can talk about the part the seeming parts of the brain. We have always been unitary because we are still the zygote. You, you see what I mean? Mm. And you know, you were a doctor, right? You had training in this, but um, there are videos available, there is a fantastic video from National Geographic about the growth of a salamander from the moment of fecundation uh, to the salamander swimming around, and it shows the inner differentiation of the zygote. And if you follow that, you see it's clearly a process of inner differentiation. There is only one part to that thing, and it's the whole thing. Mm. It's that one part that complexifies itself internally. I mean, a three-day-old human embryo has eight cells. But it has the same size as the original zygote exactly the same size and it's useful to look at those two images at that interval of time because uh, differences in size don't come into play yet yes. uh, and they are the ones that distract us and lead us down this avenue of thinking that we are made of parts uh, a, a three-day-old embryo has exactly the same size as the original zygote if you put them side by side there is no way in, in hell you would think that the three-day-old embryo is made of parts. It's plain obvious that it is the original zygote that developed internal membranes, internal division, internal differentiation, inner structure. These are not parts that are coming out of nowhere. The only part is the zygote. The only part is the whole thing, up until now. That's the way to counter that. There's another way to counter that, which is the panpsychist, like uh, uh, Hedda is a panpsychist the panpsychist makes the following mistake. It takes this, he or she takes the structure of the contents of perception to be the structure of the perceiver. And that leads to category errors. Uh, That the contents of perception, matter in the colloquial sense, is made of particles, doesn't mean that the perceiver as subject is made of particles it only means that when the perceiver is itself represented as a content of perception then the representation is made of particles um a, a metaphor to understand this is the following you're talking to me via computer mm-hmm. um you you probably have a good enough display that you don't see any pixelation but uh, if you were using a display from twenty years ago, if you looked closely, you would see that my face on your screen is made of little rectangles, each rectangle with a single color. Yes, So my representation on the screen is made of parts. Mm. But that doesn't mean that I, the thing represented as the parts, am myself made of little rectangles, <laughs> not uh, the, the the the, the the pixelation is an artifact of the representation, not of the thing represented. For yeah. exactly the same reason that a body is made of particles doesn't mean that the subject represented as the body is made of parts,
2: okay.
1: you see? But uh, this, the, why is this the least bad argument against idealism? Because it's the only one that requires me to talk about, about it for five minutes instead of 30 <laughs> seconds. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but but of this. there's so many things I want to ask you but obviously I want to, uh, this podcast I mean it's a journey it's 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 similar I mean Kurt and I spoke about this I know mean, you've been on Kurt's podcast many times and uh, it, it is pretty much a project for me as well um, for me it, mine is the primary focus is obviously the mind body problem it's called mind body solution this is the goal so I would love to have you on the podcast more often so that we can discuss this in more detail but before we conclude, the last question I'd love to ask you is in order for us to get to the solution, um, I mean, defining a problem you once said, I mean, I'm, I th- I'm paraphrasing you now. Uh, you said David Chalmers, obviously, when he phrased this problem, the hard problem of consciousness, it was one step closer to the solution. So um, what do you think we can do, myself, young philosophers, young scientists, uh, anyone entering this realm, this niche of consciousness, what can we do to get one step closer to the mind-body solution?
1: But keep talking about it. Keep <laughs> discussing. Keep talking about it. Uh, and And recognizing that um, certain declarations of final conclusions that have been issued twenty years ago um, are just nonsensical. These are old people committed to a certain view because of the public their public persona. They don't they do not know what they're talking about. Mm. The problem, the the questions are wide open. Um, And I don't think even analytic idealism is the ultimate answer. Mm. And I don't sell it that way. I put it forward as the most tenable option on the table Mm. today. Many other options being options being completely untenable. I think materialism and constitutive panpsychism are completely untenable and and demonstrably so. if we talk about it, uh, we will get used to people who have looked into this, exploring the questions as opposed to the big-mouthed big-mouthed uh, uh, self-appointed uh, uh, re- representative of scientism on television telling you that uh, no, no, we know this stuff. no, no, yeah we don't. and he doesn't
0: <laughs> when I started, I remember I I mean, I came into this very much a physicalist uh, prior to prior to my view. I came into it with a very emergentism view. I thought at some point we go up layers. Then I went to sort of an illusionist view. I thought, OK, maybe perhaps Dennett, Graziano, et cetera. Right. I even wrote in my dissertation a, an, a, an essay on consciousness based on illusionism and, and defended it, actually. But since starting this podcast and, and, and chatting, reading more books and understanding this more. I can honestly say I'm agnostic at this point. I have absolutely no idea what consciousness is, how to, how we're going to solve this mind-body problem. All I know is that I'm completely obsessed with this quest and and I thank you so much for being one of those people who are contributing to this field the way you do. Is there anything you'd like to say before we can
1: <laughs> No, you, I mean you already invited me to come back. If I, if I return, uh, I'll be very honest with you. One of the things that uh, contributes the most to not having the most productive conversation we could have is the interviewers who respect for me in the sense that the interviewer doesn't want to offend me uh, doesn't want to overtly criticize me or put forward the harder questions or confess to his skepticism or to tell me I'm full of shit uh, this is what ha- hampers the conversations the most, because it leaves the real questions yeah. neatly under the carpet, if you know what I mean. And yeah. you are obviously, I mean, I, I, I don't know whether you know this about the Dutch, you're from South, South Africa, so you you have some historical uh, uh, roots with, with the Dutch. Uh, but for the Dutch, criticism is is the wheel, is the engine of, of progress. Yeah. Now, we don't progress unless we sort of overtly criticize. We don't take this as an offense. We, in fact if, if somebody gives you gives a presentation, spent two hours of his life making effort to give you a presentation if at the end you don't criticize him, you are a jerk. It's rude the yeah. yeah you wasted his time uh-huh. You see if at the end you just applause and say it's all great you know you are the <laughs> presenter, you go like what idiots I mean what they, they think they wasted my time basically it's rude to not criticize. Yeah. So if we do this again, I sensed, throughout our conversation today that uh, there were things you're holding back on. And now I understand it better. You have a past. So why don't we do it now? Go all out. You go all out. I think I promise you, I'm not going to be offended with you. I think that's Uh, the
0: best thing. I think the cultural dynamic, I mean, coming from South Africa, when I'm interviewing a lot of guests, they're all from different, various backgrounds, different countries, different cultures. And I think for me, it's the same. I, I prefer us having an open discussion um it doesn't have to feel like a debate it doesn't have to feel like conflict all we have to do is just sort of bounce off ideas that do not correspond with each other and see who sort of wins this this game of tennis uh, um, um, for me it's not necessary that i'm going to come at you with my own views but i think if we do do this again i definitely agree with what you're saying is that i'm going to come with more specific counter arguments to to help you actually solidify your points it
1: uh, gives me much more chance to say what uh, what i have to say
0: yeah you know what i, I mean i completely agree and i think as, a, as an opener because I, I'm, I'm obviously it's still the beginning this is a long journey it's a project as as i was saying i mean i would love to actually do exactly what you said and the fact that you've given me that permission uh it gives me a lot of excitement for around
1: <laughs> <laughs> if you have to err err on the side of being rude as opposed to <laughs> not asking the real question or good. not making Even the real I can, criticism. I can
0: successfully do that for you, if that's exactly what you want.
1: <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I, you're, you're not going to offend me. I mean, I, we've been talking for, what, two hours? Oh, it was two hours. Two hours, hours now. Hmm. So uh, it's enough to have a reading of you. Uh, you, you are not the type of person uh, who will offend me. Hmm. There are people who can offend me because I know they are coming from agendas. Uh, they They are not here, honestly. They're not asking honest questions. Uh, you know, it, it it it's a game for them. Yeah. And I can be offended when people are gaming me. I was very offended with Zabine Hosenfelder when she lied to my face during a debate because I thought, no, you don't expect the person you're debating to to lie. Yeah. You expect the person to debate robustly, yeah. uh, But not to lie on your face just to make it uh, to make you look like an idiot mm. and and save her face um so that offends me but you i have a reading of you already you're not going to do that no no So we can I, go all out loud
0: my, my goal my goal with this podcast is obviously to allow you to defend your views as much as possible but that obviously requires me to ask you well-researched questions that are direct but also to play devil's advocate so if you want the devil within me to come out and,
1: and, and yes. And, that's
0: it and advocate for him i'm definitely going to do that in round two yeah that's
1: that's no. the way to make it uh, useful to do it again exactly. otherwise we would just dance the same dance we just danced right now and I it has its value agree. but we don't need to repeat it
0: no i completely agree 100 <laughs> percent and there's so many questions i actually do want to ask you but because we had to reschedule this meeting around my south african the problems with pol- politics down here and, and the fact that it's what's the time it's 11 p.m um, it hindered me a little bit with regards to what I really wanted to delve deep in. And, and I think that when it comes around to, round two, I'm going to come with a set group of questions that I've thought about myself, I'm going to get the online community to tell me what they've really been wanting to know. And, and I'm also going to look at it every other counter argument I could possibly find online and, and bring it at you. And I think that's what you, sure. and that's what you yes. want.
1: Let's do that. Yes. Let's do that. <laughs> then <laughs> I'll come back. Thank you so
0: much, Bernardo. Um, <laughs> Any, any final words, anything from your side you want to say um, regarding the mind-body problem before we leave?
1: No, I think we, we covered what we could cover today. Okay, no.
0: thank you so much. It was an absolute pleasure, Bernardo. I can't wait for round two. I'm, I'm, I'm
1: more excited than before. <laughs> <laughs> I'm looking forward to that too.
0: <laughs> uh, cheers, Bernardo. Thank you All so right, Kevin. Have a great night. And round two is coming soon. Yeah.
1: All right. Thanks a lot. Take care, Je- man. Cheers, Bernardo. Bye now.